Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vaborg Thun. Tonight, we stay in the Commonwealth, but far away from the chilly streets of Victorian London. We travel once again down under to Australia. And the outback. Let me take you along to do some bushwhacking, where I will introduce you to none other than Ivan Milat, the backpacker killer. He is probably, aside from Ned Kelly, Australia's most famous killer, and he murdered at least seven young men and women before he was caught. The Serial Killer Podcast now has well over 8 million downloads. I am humbled by this, and to be honest, I never thought the show would grow so large. I could not have made this show without the support of my loyal patrons. I am very thankful for your support. And to my dear listeners who haven't visited my Patreon yet, I have some very interesting news. My Patreon is now far more customized to meet the feedback I have gotten from you. There are now several new Patreon tiers that you can join, and they are as follows. The first tier is $1, and by donating that, you are an official TSK patron and an active contributor to this show's very existence. 
The second tier is five dollars. And with that, I will personally recognize your patronage by thanking you on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash the SK podcast. Another brand new tier is the $10 tier, where you can ask me any question in writing you wish, and I will read the question on the podcast and answer it. At $15, I personally thank you for your contribution on the show, and of course, you can also send in questions that I will answer. For the truly dedicated serial killer aficionados out there, I have two new tiers. For $50, I will personally call you and personally thank you and chat with you a bit. Finally, if you want the ultimate TSK experience, for $200, I will arrange for up to an hour of personal conversation one-on-one with you regarding any topic you wish. So, to donate and choose from these tiers, go to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast now. At first, the two orienteers thought a strong smell in the forest must be that of a dead animal. But, as they drew closer to the boulder in the isolated gully, what had first appeared to be a kangaroo leg turned out to be a human elbow, and the fur that they thought they saw sticking out of the leaves was, in fact, the hair on the back of a decomposing human head. Their maps marked the spot as Executioner's Drop. It was the 19th of September, 1992, and the mystery of Australia's missing backpackers was beginning to emerge in the Belanglo State Forest, just 150 kilometers, that's about 90 miles, southwest of Sydney, Australia's largest city. The next day, New South Wales Police Constable Suzanne Roberts found a second body pushed under a log just 30 metres from the first corpse. The bodies were soon identified as the remains of missing British hitchhikers Joanne Walters, aged 22, and her friend, 21-year-old Caroline Clark. The two girls had both been bound, stabbed, and shot, suffering multiple wounds. There was also evidence of sexual assault, and that the killer had the chain smoked through the ordeal and taken his time. It was even feared that because their bodies were found lying in the same north-to-south direction, with their heads to the south, there could be some ritualistic element to the killings. Both women were the last known victims of the man who'd become known across the world as the backpacker killer. The two girls' remains were the first confirmation of the police's worst fear 
that a serial killer was operating near Sydney. The eerie forest was to give up the skeletal and mutilated remains of five more young people and spark Australia's largest ever murder inquiry before their brazen killer would be tracked down. Yet, it was the tragic story of Joanne and Caroline and their parents' brave yet vain attempts to find them alive, which came to represent for many the true horror of the case. The girls' names first came to public attention when police took the highly unusual step of interrupting the broadcast of an English-Australia rugby match in June of 1992 to appeal for help in locating them. Officers in the Missing Persons Bureau wanted the largest possible TV audience, hoping the girls or someone who knew them might have been watching the match. They also set up a toll-free hotline in a bid to get new information. But, alas, there were no firm leads. Welsh-born nanny Joanne and convent-educated Caroline from Northumberland had met in Australia, travelling on carefree working holiday visas, like thousands of other young backpackers every year. Many thumbed their way across the continent, as all the guidebooks said as Australia was one of the friendliest and safest countries in the world for hitchhiking. Joanne and Caroline had both travelled the country before, sharing a rented flat in Sydney's King's Cross district. Then, they decided to hitch south to pick fruit. On Easter Saturday, the 18th of April, both were last seen heading towards King's Cross Station, carrying sleeping bags and a tent. Two weeks later, Ray and Gil Walters began to get worried as they had not heard anything from their only daughter, who usually called home once a week. On the 26th of May, when Joanne's visa expired, they became even more alarmed and reported her disappearance to police in Wales, who informed their counterparts in Australia. Ian Clark, Bank of England regional director, and his wife, Jacqueline, were less concerned, that is, until Caroline failed to make any contact for her father's 58th birthday. Both families travelled to Australia to search for their daughters and refused to accept suggestions that they could have met foul play. They preferred to think they might be staying with Aborigines on a remote desert location or even stranded somewhere in the vast outback. We never gave up hope, said Ian Clark. We dredged around thinking of every conceivable thing the girls could be doing where they couldn't get in touch, going out as Girl Fridays on a yacht or working on a homestead without a telephone. End quote. In August, spurred on by the publicity the families had generated, the police began to make a connection between a series of missing person reports of foreign tourists 
in New South Wales and Queensland. By the time Joanne and Caroline's badly decomposed bodies were found, five other backpackers were known to have vanished while hitchhiking on the busy Hume Highway that links Sydney and Melbourne. The first to disappear were two 19-year-old Australians on their way to an environmental rally at the end of 1989. Then, during 1991, three German backpackers had also gone missing. It was an emotional time, and the distraught Ray and Gil Walters faced the press to deliver a statement soon after Joanne's body was found. Whoever did this thing, said Ray, speaking for many, I wouldn't call them sick, because sick people can be cured to an extent. These are evil-minded people, and like dogs with rabies, there is only one way. They have got to be put down and destroyed. There has got to be some system whereby we destroy those people for their evil genes. End quote. Time passed, but no specialist task force was set up to investigate links between the deaths and the disappearances. Three detectives were put on the hunt for the girl's killer, but in twelve months turned up next to nothing. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the story was being reported in the British newspapers. And in Birmingham, Paul Onions, an air conditioning engineer who had backpacked around Australia in 1990, was following events with particular interest. The gruesome details brought back a day he would rather have forgotten. It was January 1990. A man whom Onion regarded as the first real Australian he had met, had given him a lift. But further down the road, near the turn-off to the Belanglo State Forest, the man pulled a gun and tried to rob him. Onions had reported the incident to nearby Boral police the very same day. He was not to know that not only had they failed to take any action, but they had also lost his report. Four crucial years were to pass before the police and Paul Onions were to make contact again. In late 1992, Father Stephen Gray conducted a moving memorial service in the heart of the forest for Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. I quote, We have come here today where something wicked happened, so that this place can be peaceful again and its memories put out to rest. End quote. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serial killer. But the priest's words were not to be. On the 5th of October, 1993, Bruce Pryor parked his jeep deep in the forest and started looking for firewood. He soon tumbled upon a human thigh bone and then an upturned skull. There were other human bones at the foot of a gum tree, just a few kilometers away from where the British girls' bodies had been found. Police soon found the remains of 19-year-old Deborah Phyllis Everest, who had last been seen on the 30th of December 1989 with her boyfriend James Gibson at a Sydney backpacker's hostel. The couple had told friends that they planned to hitch south down the Hume Highway to Albury for a conservation rally. Pathologists were unable to determine the exact cause of Deborah's death because of the time that her body had been in the open. But there was evidence she had been hit with a sharp object, as well as stabbed in the head and body. Her black bra and pants had been removed and cut with a knife. She had been gagged and tied up with her own tights. James's body was lying in the fetal position, within fifty meters of his girlfriend. Like all the other remains, it was almost completely covered with sticks and branches to accelerate decomposition. He had suffered multiple stab wounds to the lungs, heart, and liver and the violent cutting blow to the spine, which would have paralyzed him. The most cursory examination of the four bodies showed the killings had been especially violent. Like all the remains recovered from the forest, none showed any signs of defensive wounds. Police now had no doubt they were hunting a serial killer. And on the 12th of October, 1993, 
Special Task Force Air was established under the command of Superintendent Clive Small. Twenty detectives were assigned to the team, along with crime scene specialists and forensic experts. Within three days, specially trained sniffer dogs were brought in from Queensland, since Superintendent Small fared the worst. An extra sixty police were seconded to begin a meticulous and methodical search of the five-square-kilometre strop where the four bodies had been discovered. The net is really Australia, said Superintendent Small at a time. We have something like seventeen million people. We start from there and work in. End quote. And so it was that on the 1st of November, the skeletal remains of missing 20-year-old German hitchhiker Simone Schmidl were found another five kilometers to the east. Her body showed signs of having suffered multiple stab wounds. Simone was last seen on the 20th of January, 1991, when, against the advice of her friends in Sydney, she decided to hitchhike down to Melbourne for a long-planned reunion with her mother. Police immediately increased their numbers to 80 and widened the search area to cover more than 20 kilometers of fire trails. It was now apparent it would only be a matter of time before they found the bodies of the other missing young couple, German Anja Habschied, aged 20, and Gabor Neugebauer, aged 21. In a chilling similarity to the other victims, they too were last seen at King's Cross Hostel, planning to head out of town and hitch to Adelaide on Boxing Day, 1991. Detectives already had copies of dental records when their bodies were found on either side of a fire trail on the 4th of November, just one kilometer from Simone's. Again, there were similar patterns of tying, stabbing, and excessive force. Gabor's body was found with a gag wedged between his teeth. He was still fully clothed, and had been shot six times in the head. There was also evidence of strangulation. Anya had been decapitated with a sword or machete while she was still alive, and her head has never been found. Let us pause there for one brief moment to contemplate that. Decapitation is usually a rather quick method of execution, if it's done in one blow. A typical example of this is when a person is executed by a guillotine. The blade drops and the head is severed from the body immediately. When the head is severed from the body, all the nerve endings going from the spine into the head and back are cut off, probably causing immediate unconsciousness and death. However, Anya was not killed via guillotine. 
Anya was decapitated with a sword or machete, and doing this, especially if it's a machete, is not done in one blow. Cutting off a head using a machete involves several blows. Slowly chopping the head from the body. This causes massive amounts of pain, shock, and horror. So, it's important to keep that in mind before we continue. Forensic pathologist Dr. Peter Bradhurst said the blow was consistent with her kneeling with her head bowed. What immediately comes to mind is the style of ceremonial execution, he said. Dr. Bradhurst, who performed the autopsies on all seven of the victims, later said in court that it seemed to him that it was more than likely the killer had not acted alone. Just one day before the last bodies were discovered, the name Robert Ivan Marco Milat first came to the attention of the police task force. There was little real evidence, but a workmate had voiced his suspicions about Mila's obsession with guns. The tip-off joined the one million-plus leads provided by an Australian public, horrified that their hospitable nation could witness such an outrage, and they were desperate to help catch the killer. As an outsider, Caroline's father, Ian, felt the reaction firsthand. The overwhelming feeling from the people of Australia was of shame, a strong feeling of shame that something as dreadful as this could have happened in their country. But who was this Ivan Milat? Ivan Milat was born two days after Christmas in 1944. He was the fourth son of Stephen, a 44-year-old Croatian immigrant, and his young Australian wife, Margaret, was barely half her husband's age. The family was to grow to 14 children, with Ivan roughly in the middle. Ivan's father, who had served with the British Army in World War I, worked long hours as a wharf labourer, and sometimes put in seven days a week. The family was nominally raised as Catholics, but Mr. Millet had little time for education or authority apart from his own. Dad was strict but fair, remembered brother Wally Millet in an interview. If you came home and you'd been in any sort of trouble, He'd just whack you to the ground. He was strict and ruled with an iron fist. End quote. When Ivan was aged four, his father decided to become a market gardener. The whole family was press-ganged into working, which included watering tomatoes up to two o'clock in the morning. But even so, they only made a meager living. It wasn't tough, raising all the kids, because we worked hard, said Margaret, the seventy-five-year-old matriarch of the sprawling family. We never had trouble with Ivan. None of them, really. End quote. 
The Millet clan lived in a three-bedroom house near working-class Liverpool on the outskirts of Sydney. The children slept in triple-tiered bunks. Another son, Alex, remembers that having guns in the house was like having a spare pair of boots, and all fourteen children learned to shoot. Like most of the others, Ivan went to the local Patrician Brothers High School, where he was considered bright and good at maths and arts. His brother Alex said that Ivan was a bit smarter in the head than the rest of them. But soon, Ivan started regularly skipping classes, so he was moved and spent his early teenage years at Boys Town, an institution for overburdened families and their wayward sons. Ivan's mother recalled that the brothers there never had any trouble with him. He even was an altar boy. The family was large and needed money. So, like his brothers, at age 15, Ivan left school and went to work on various building sites. All the boys went on to live lives of heavy manual work. Guns and knives were part of the family's pastimes. Ivan inherited his father's obsessive cleanliness and love of order. But by the time he was seventeen, Ivan was in trouble with the law for breaking into a house and stealing. In 1962, he was given six months in a juvenile institution for breaking and entering. Over the rest of the 1960s, four more jail terms would follow for breaking and entering, stealing and car theft. His mother blames those years on Ivan falling in with the wrong crowd. However, the police, who were a regular sight at the Millat's household, remember it differently. They said the brothers would never give each other up, and were always covering for each other. The sheer number of sons also led to confusion. In 1969, the family moved to the better parts of Sydney's suburb of Guildford, where Margaret still lives today. It was there that Ivan's youngest sister, Margaret, was killed when a car-driven by brother Wally was in a head-on accident near the family home. Ivan was one of the first on the scene, and reportedly took it rough. Within a month of his sister's death in 1971, he was charged with raping one of two women he had picked up hitchhiking near Liverpool. It was near the point where, twenty years later, the backpacker victims would start to vanish. There was a committal hearing, but Millat, who also faced two armed robbery charges, including one at a bank, jumped bail and fled to New Zealand, where he stayed until 1974. On his return, he was promptly re-arrested. He was acquitted of the robbery charges, and in a one-day trial beat the rape charge after one of the victims changed her story. There was evidence that Millat, then aged 26, 
had tied up both women and threatened them with a knife. But, incredibly, the police task force investigating the backpacker murders never learned about the chilling similarities of the crimes until late in the day. Years later, Milat confided to a friend that he was in fact guilty of pulling the back job, but the brother who was also involved took the rap. By 1975, Milat was apparently respectable. He still lived with his parents, didn't drink or smoke, and was a workaholic interstate truck driver. Ivan now met his future wife, Karen, then seventeen, and pregnant to his cousin Mark. Soon the couple were living together in a caravan, in a garden, and saving a deposit for a house. Ivan treated Karen's son Jason as if he was his own, and married Karen in the mid-1980s. The family were not asked to the wedding, as they were in the midst of a feud. Millet's father had died of bowel cancer in the early 1980s, and there was more tragedy when Ivan's brother, David, was permanently brain-damaged in a motorcycle accident. By then, Ivan was working for the Department of Main Roads and was away for days at a time. The marriage was under further pressure, mainly due to Ivan's frugality. It was alleged during the murder trial that it was at this time he had an affair with Maureen, the first wife of his brother Walter. There was also a violent side to the marriage, well hidden behind the obsessive neatness of the house-proud Millet. In his wife's words, he was becoming gun-crazy and often took to beating her. Then, on St. Valentine's Day in 1987, while Ivan was away at work, Karen packed up the house, with the help of her mother, and fled, taking all the furniture. He didn't see her again for seven years, until Karen, then on a witness protection scheme, gave evidence against him at his committal hearing. In 1989, Milat quit his regular job. He took to working under an alias to avoid tax and stop Karen claiming any of his income. The divorce went through, and by the end of the year the two young hitchhikers, Deborah Everest and James Gibson, had gone missing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And so ends part one of the tale of Ivan Milat. Next week, our story of Jack the Ripper runs towards its final destination. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast had not been possible if it hadn't been for my dear patrons that invest in this show via Patreon. My special thanks go out to those of you that have stayed loyal for a long time. Those of you I would like to give an extra heartfelt thank you to are Sandy, Amber, Anne, Christina, Charlotte, Evan, Joe, Lisbeth, Maud, Mickey, Philip, PJ, Sarah, and Troy. Your monthly contributions really helps keep this podcast thriving. You have my deepest gratitude. As always, thank you, dear listener, for listening. And feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app, Facebook, or website. And please do subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>